I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore in your favorite everything. Uh, we are no longer limiting ourselves to video games. We're doing everything because we can. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Perez, and with me as always, uh, well, I'm pretty sure if he was in any form of superhero comic book, I don't know why, but I always, always associated him with Sasquatch, Matt Rossi. How you doing, Matt? I feel like I should be very, very difficult to get a good picture of or speak to. <laughs> Uh man, yeah, Marvel Comics. Unless you mean, of course, Doctor Walter Lankowski. I do mean his most famous appearance is probably in Alpha Flight number six, where he fought the Super Scroll, and the Super Scroll broke his arm before he could transform. So when he transformed, the broken arm ground up against the uh, pieces of the rest of the bones and drove him mad. So when he came out as Sasquatch, he practically almost ripped the Super Scroll's head clean off. Yeah, that's what I'm referring to because comics. Uh, especially in the 90s and especially with uh, revolving around things that had anything tangentially to do with the Hulk were wild. Uh, But last week we talked about comics quite extensively uh, and you all seem to really enjoy that. So thank you very much for our Patreon supporters who asked those questions. If you want us to answer more questions about that or anything, be sure to send those questions in. You can send them into podcast at blizzardwatch.com or you can send them into one of our many Discord channels. We have one to decide for our Patreon supporters, uh, which is the Patreon Q and podcast questions. We also have one for non-Patreon supporters because we understand that you know sometimes financial support is not possible. But if you're listening to us and spreading the word, that is support just the same. But you can send those questions into Q and podcast questions. We're actually going to do some catch up because you guys all sent us a ton of questions uh, running all over the gamut of of games and stuff. So we're going to do some some backtracking and uh, see what we can get done for today. Uh, we're going to start with Avatar. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. If not, I apologize. Could you tell us the histories of the three prime candidates for the new aspect of the Black Dragonflight, Rathion, Sibelian, and Abyssian, and give your opinions on the best pick? Thanks. Matt, do you have a strong opinion on this? I feel we talked about it a little bit, but... I feel like it should be Dora. I'm... Okay. I mean, she's got that, you know, backpack. It's really cool. She goes around a lot of places. I think she'd be a good leader for the Black Dragonflight. So what you're saying is Dora, Dora is a dragon. I mean, maybe. You've heard it here first, folks. I mean, have you actually ever seen anyone on that show say she wasn't a dragon? That is fair. No, um, okay. Well, <clears throat> of the three candidates, Abyssian was the result of Holm High Mountain using one of the Titan artifacts to purify his egg. I'm not sure exactly how he did it, quite frankly. I don't know if he, I don't know how the Hammer of Kazaroth did that. I didn't know that was the thing it did, but that's what happened there. Well, considering uh, it's a Titan artifact, I mean, kind of makes sense, right? It kind of makes sense, but it, we don't know that it's, you know, we don't know how it works. Um, the, in terms of who Ebonhorn slash Abyssian is, I mean, he's Ebonhorn. Uh, he's been kind of acting as the, like, major domo slash, like, second in command for the High Mountain Clan for about 10,000 years. Uh, new tribal leaders come and go. Uh, Abyssian is still there. Basically, um working off his debt to home essentially for giving him a life at all and not letting him not being, you know, cuckoo for our old God puffs. So that's been going on for the past 10,000 years. We know that Abyssian is still 
susceptible to the whispers of the old gods. Um, although I think maybe now he's he's in a better place thanks to the stuff that uh, Rathion learned. In terms of Abyssian leading the, the Black Dragonflight, I don't think he wants to do that, and I don't think he would be a good choice to do that. I'm not saying that Abyssian isn't a very good Black Dragon, but I am saying he's a very atypical Black Dragon. To a certain degree, whilst we don't want Black Dragons to be like Deathwing, we do want them to be like Naltharian before he went, you know, he was driven mad by the old gods. We want them to be a certain type of being. And to be fair, we're, we're just, we don't even know what that being really is at this point, right? Because most of our stuff has been viewing the Black Dragons after the after the fall of, of uh, well, basically the transformation of Naltharian into Deathwing, right? Like the, the sub coming to Madness. Yes? No? Yeah, I'm usually like, I just think in general, what we've seen of Abyssian, he is, for lack of a better word, he's a very empathic dragon. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he cares about the beings that he considers his people. Uh, he's he spent the past 10,000 years with the High Mountain as his major concern. It doesn't make him a bad person. Uh, it certainly doesn't make him, you know, a bad leader, but it might mean he's not really in a position to lead the Black Dragons. And again, it doesn't seem like he's particularly interested in that position. But there's certainly, I thought it was interesting in Battle for Azeroth when we saw Abyssian slash Ebonhorn interacting with Rathion, where, you know, Rathion straight up says, you know, you know, I was, I was, you know, I was having people watch you. I was trying to figure out what was going on. And he's like, he basically says, you know, you're the, like, you're the only family I have left. So it's very clear that Rathion and Abyssian, I don't know if they'd say they, they have a full on connection yet, but they definitely are cognizant of the fact that they are two of the last black dragons. Mm-hmm. As for Sibelian, we, we know Sibelian primarily through his appearance in uh burning crusade, where we meet Baron Sablemane, who's out in the uh, blades edge mountains. And he's got a, a powerful grudge up against the various sons of gruel. And we find out that through that, we find out that he is in fact a dragon. We find out when he shows up to challenge one of, uh, Gruel's sons. I forget which one it is. Gok? Is it Gok? I don't know. Might have been. I don't remember. But when he shows up to challenge him, he takes his draconic form. And you find out that the reason there are so many dead dragons impaled around Blade's Edge is because the sons of Gruel have been finding them and killing them. And so Sibelian is, he's focused on the survival of his flight. That's, That's clear enough. But he does not seem particularly interested in going back to Azeroth. I've seen, like, you know, keep in mind it's been years, but there's been, there's been no sign that Sibelian intends to go back. Uh, so if he doesn't go back, he really can't lead the Black Dragon. Um, that being said, maybe he will go back. Maybe the problem there is that, you know, Abyssian was purified mm-hmm. and he still hears the whispers. Um, it wasn't until Rathion basically said, look, yeah, I found out that we can block them out doing this, that he could safely leave uh, High Mountain. When he tried leaving High Mountain to help with the uh, heart of Azeroth, he got jumped almost immediately by the old gods, and it was it was Rathion who helped uh, secure him from that. Sibelian has never been purified. Sibelian was a seems to have been a child of after Deathwing went went mad. If he's not from after, then he he grew up with Deathwing as Deathwing over the past ten thousand years. That was his. That's the Dragonflight as he knew it. Yeah, we actually don't know which one of the the consorts was his his mother either. Like they never, yeah. they never really state that. Well, he killed all of them but one. We know the that- one. Yeah, the one that he didn't kill seems like a good a good possibility. But it, it's possible that from bo- if he was if he was sired before Deathwing began splitting open and becoming lava, mm-hmm. which is what killed his other consorts. He didn't Deathwing for all his madness. Deathwing did not try to kill them. He just kept trying to mate with them, even though he was like literally molten lava. Now uh, we know that Anixia, Nefarian, and Nixandra are considered half siblings to him. Yeah, they are, in, and to each other for that matter. Mm-hmm. So we don't know who the mother of Nefarian and Anixia, or for that matter, the mother of Nixandra is, or much less Sibelian. We don't know their mother, but we. We, we know that Sibelian is likely the most susceptible to the old gods, which I don't think would be acceptable to if, even if the dragon, the black dragonflight was willing to accept that nobody else would. Mm-hmm. And with dragonflight involving the, all the other aspects, it doesn't feel like that, that that's a decision they'd go with. Even if Sibelian tried to press his, his claim, uh, which leaves us with right now, 
two possibilities, one of which is Rathion, and the other is we don't know yet. I can't really, there's nothing much to say about we don't know yet. There might be another black dragon out there somewhere that we don't know about that, that shows up and decides to be, uh, to, to be a contender. The other is Rathion. Uh, I think at this point, Joe, you should probably talk about Rathion because I've been talking a bit. <laughs> Uh, I mean, Rathion is also like the the culmination of our tampering with titanic purification into the what was considered the last viable black dragon egg, uh, sacrificing a lot to actually make sure that Rathion was this pure uh, strain of black dragon. Uh, as a result, he has all of the genetic and ancestral memory that dragons have when they awaken, uh, but is still very much I mean, he's been an adolescent for a while. Uh, and even when we encounter him now, he's still very young by dragon standards. Uh, his growth was accelerated. Uh, and when we first met him, he was transforming into a whelp. Now he is definitely a young dragon when he transforms. Uh, he stood with us as we fought against the old god Nazoth. Uh, actually, he was instrumental in driving the uh, emptied blade of Zalatath into the carapace of Nazoth, causing the Fury to spawn and Nazoth to be at least somewhat vulnerable for us to do what we needed to do. His heart, I think, is in the right place, but the problem is he's extraordinarily inexperienced and also very much a, a scheming black dragon. Um, he's... I'm trying to think of how else to really phrase it besides that. His involvement in the various tinkerings of Azeroth has led us to one the Iron Horde, and dealing with that and the fallout from that. Without Rathion, we wouldn't have the Magar Orcs. Uh, without Rathion, we would not have gone to Draenor in the first first place. That is a whole thing that occurred and happened. Um, a lot of the stuff that occurred with the war between the Alliance and the Horde right around like Pandaria is a result or has meddling from him in it, including him kind of hanging out with Anduin. Uh, for a long period of time when nobody knew where Anduin was. he We know that he has a spy network. He's had a spy network for a very, very long time. We don't know what the end goal of that ever was, but we were introduced to it. We know that he's he's got agents in a lot of different places. So as far as him leading the Black Dragons, my take on it is this, and this is sort of like to kind of lump everything back all together. I think he's the natural choice, and here's why. I think that he has the most legitimate claim. He is the one teaching others how to withstand the whisperings of the old gods. And I think there is something that Matt mentioned earlier that I've been thinking about for a while is while they were guardians of the deep place, I'm wondering if empathy was sort of one of the things that they were just sort of in tune with as one of their domains that nobody talks about because they are like Abyssian is very sensitive uh, to sort of the folks around him. And I'm wondering if the Black Dragons in their original habitat were like that before the fall, before before Deathwing uh, replaced Neltharion, as far as personalities go. But I don't think he would lead alone, and I don't think he should lead alone because he is very inexperienced. I actually think that it should be Rathian in a form of leadership with Abyssian advising him. Abyssian has been around for a very, very long time and has a completely different view on the world that Rathion lacks. Even though he's been in High Mountain for you know thousands of years and is just now seeing the world, being with the High Mountain Tauren and their society, I think, gave him an opportunity to learn more about interacting with, in particular, the mortal races than any other dragon, really. Because if you think about it, what other dragon has spent positive time with the mortal races for that extended period of time besides the green dragon flight? I don't think any of them really, right? Aside from like observing them, but not really being involved with them. So for me... Not the bronze, that's for sure. Definitely not the bronze. The red... They were forced into a uh, yeah. a relationship with uh, the uh, orcs at a horrible time. And that is yeah, not but before exactly that. I mean, that's that's fairly recent. Sure. Before that, the Red have a relatively long history of working alongside and with mortal races. But you're correct in that the most recent interaction wasn't that great. Yeah. So that would be my bet. And Sibelian, I think, is completely out of the picture because I think Matt is correct. I don't 
think that Sabellian would be in a place, one, to not lead in the example that his father set before him. And you even see that when you go to deal with him. And while SI7 uh, and Matthias Shaw in particular says that Sabellian is not an immediate threat to us, that doesn't mean that he wouldn't be if he were to come back. We don't know what that would be. We don't know what he was told was the ultimate game plan, but he's fine in Outland right now. He's fine over there doing whatever he's doing with those with that area. He can continue his war with the Gron. But I think a combination of Rathian and Abyssian would be the most logical choice. Rathian as the aspect, perhaps, as the most legitimate claim and direct lineage and the most quote-unquote pure with the ability to withstand the calling of the old gods, and Abyssian advising him on nature of humanity, essentially. That's where my money would be. And I think there might be... The problem is I, I want to talk about spoilers, and I, I don't think we should yet because I know nothing set in stone, but this is a question that I feel is going to be answered in the next expansion, and I think that we are not far away from that. Would you agree, Matt? Yes. <laughs> like, I think it's going to be an early an early question and an early answer in the expansion that we'll wind up working towards. At least that's where my money is. My only caveat would be I do think there is a possibility of another character coming into play that we don't know about either because we have forgotten about this character or because the character has not yet been established in the game. I think it's possible there are black dragons that have been frozen on the Dragon Isles for the past 10,000 years, just like the Drak there. That is also po- that is an interesting possibility, um, so, especially it considering... It is possible. Oh, go ahead. As I say, especially considering some of the the things that are, are talked about or revealed during the Drak Theory starting area. I don't want to go into too much detail about that, obviously. No, that's, that's, that was it for me in terms of what I was saying. <laughs> just, just I think that it's possible that it won't be any of them, that it'll be somebody else, or that at least somebody else will be there and make a claim. Fair enough. All right, we're going to move on to our next question, though, so hopefully that answered at least a little bit of it, or at least you enjoyed the discussion therein. Uh, but this one comes from Tetsemi. Does the... Oh, sorry. Uh, not Tetsemi. It's going to be a person. Tetsemi's later. Uh, on Reddit, I saw a really interesting thread about Cho and the Lorewalkers potentially being secret bronze dragons. Do you believe there are any cha- characters we've been interacting with in the Warcraft universe whom are secretly dragons? Probably a lot of them. Like, being honest, it could literally be any of them. Dragons being able to take uh, humanoid form and choosing their form uh, is sort of a thing. That's why, like, in Vanilla WoW, a lot of, like, the big reveals, like was that this person was a dragon the entire time. These guards were dragons all the entire time. There were big story moments around that. And then as we started progressing, we started to learn that it wasn't just human form that they could take. It was gnomes. It was elves. Uh, they could take form of trolls and, and orcs. We know that they can be Torin. So basically, any race we interact with, any NPC, does have the potential to have been or be revealed to be a dragon as far as the Cho and the lore walkers being secret bronze dragons there might actually be some truth to that uh maybe not Cho himself but there's nothing that says the other lore walkers or lore walkers from the past weren't bronze dragons or were not taught by bronze dragons the magic that the the lore walkers wield that brings life to story that brings life to memory also gives it physical form that we can interact with. It's almost like being displaced in time and space to interact with these exact moments. And we know for a fact that the bronze dragonflight can move us between time and space, the caverns of time. We do that all the time. So what if the origin of the lore walkers was a bronze dragon who decided that I want to be a Pandaren today and was wandering around and happened to be interested in the oral tradition that the uh, Pandarians were sharing because they weren't allowed to, to write things down. They weren't allowed uh, to basically have a written culture for a very long time, uh, at least not under the rule of the Mogu. Well, what if he showed them how to give their stories life, to captivate their audiences, to maybe make those memories more permanent? There's potential for that there. There's potential that some of the current lore walkers out there could be bronze dragons there, there is something intriguing about that idea because we know that dragons are their their domains can be a whole lot of of what we would expect to be mortal races like the Emerald Dragonflight. 
a lot of their magic is very, very close to druidry. This is why you see like the Emerald Dragonflight hanging out with druids a lot. The whole Emerald Dream thing, eh, yeah, that that's there. So why not? Why not the Bronze Dragonflight? Why not maybe, maybe having a red dragon that was one of the early healers? Doesn't matter what kind. Maybe the preservation of life was super important to it. For that matter, it could be the green dragons as well. Maybe the black dragon flight taught some of the first shaman. We actually don't really know with certainty the true origin of shamanic tradition. We know that several races have shamans. It always looks a little bit different, but the root is always essentially the same. Is, was that taught to them by a dragon that was wandering through? We don't know, but any any bit of magic or any bit of oddity or any bit of spirituality or, or arcane anything that we encounter, yeah, that could potentially be a dragon. Matt, what do you think? Dragons like chocolate milk. I don't know how to respond to that. Okay, good. Uh, while you're confused, um, I personally think it's better if the lore walkers are not dragons or infiltrated by dragons or started by dragons. I think some things should just be the thing that they show themselves to you as. Um, and I think it's, it's an important for the lore walkers to be a Pandaria thing that has, you know, roots in the cultures there and is about a different approach to history and legend and mythology and how they view time. Like the, the Pandaria has been basically frozen in stasis for 10,000 years. Uh, not literally, but, figuratively it's been in this holding pattern for 10,000 years and i think it is important that the lore walkers existed through that time were part of that time and then have now helped usher in a new era for the for the people of pandaria that being said everything joe said is correct um he's not wrong about any of it i'm just expressing a, an opinion here that i i think story wise i would prefer not to see it turns out that Lorewalker Cho is in fact a dragon. Uh, it turns out, like you know, this Lorewalker and that Lorewalker, they're they're dragons too. I I think it, it would kind of it would take away something from the story. The, the idea that you know the the Lorewalkers are like modern day representatives of the past that they they speak for those who are no longer here to speak for themselves. Um, if they were dragons, then they didn't they were there at the time. So it's it's a little different. Uh, but certainly they could be, um, or they could be. It could be something as simple as a as a bronze dragon met, you know, the the first emperor and made a deal with him. I don't know. I, I the other problem is, of course, is that like a lot of stuff in Pandaria like is is been isolated for so long that it's you know when we see when we see the bronze dragonflight show up in Pandaria, they go immediately to the timeless isle, and it, it feels like they've they've not been in Pandaria for this long period of time. So it feels like they wouldn't really necessarily have a direct influence on the Lorewalkers. But, you know, th that could change. They could always decide that they did. I just personally think I'd rather they not. Which is a valid point, right? Like, it, it's it's something that is also true. It just sometimes things should just be what they are, and that should be the end of it. Uh, but hopefully that answers your question, and I think we're going to move on to the next one, which is from Tetsemi. Uh, does the ongoing existence of Shadowlands in the WoW narrative significantly lessen the impact of death going forward? Oh, major lore character died? I wonder which covenant they got sorted into and how they're doing. Oh, wait, since the Kyrian are the ones tasked with shuttling souls, couldn't we just ask them for a solid and have them return the soul? Seems like it's added a whole layer of complication to the ongoing story. How would you resolve this if you feel it is an issue? Uh, in the or if you feel it's an issue in the ongoing lore. Also, since we're talking death, has Sylvanas found Nathanos' soul yet? That's going to be a bit, a bit of drama when that happens. Matt sounded like he was keen up, so I'll let him go first. Uh, well, first off, I mean, if you look at actual human history, we thought for generations that we knew exactly what happened when you died, and it didn't. People didn't think that that just trivialized things because they knew whether or not you know heaven existed, they weren't coming back from it. You know. Uh, same thing with like the the Greek, you know, the Greek religion. What they believed happened to the dead. Um, you know, they 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 believed it was a lot crappier. That basically dead people just sat there and were dead and could not enjoy anything and couldn't. You know, like the whole thing where Achilles is like, you know, I would I would rather be a stable boy amongst the living than the mightiest king in the land of the dead, sort of thing. So 
that doesn't bother me. Uh, most people don't know about it. Uh, the few people who've actually been over there were only over there because there was a gigantic hole ripped in the veil between the land of the living and the land of the dead. That hole has been closed up. So there's not going to be, the Kyrian can't just come over and hand you the soul of some dead person because the Kyrian can't get through the veil. They can go up to the veil. They can go up to the place where the, the souls of the dead are first coming into the Shadowlands. They can't go beyond it. That's the thing about the uh, the Valkyr. And we already knew about the Valkyr. The Valkyr can go into the misty borderland just, just at the edge of the veil. Basically, the Valkyr don't just go through into the Shadowlands and the, uh, the, the Kyrian don't come forth from the Shadowlands. And we've seen that before the hole was ripped by destroying the Helm of Domination, only beings like the Lich King had the ability to really go back and forth at all. And even the Lich King was basically using the Helm of Domination to do it, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I don't know what the Helm of Wills does, uh, quite frankly. I have no idea what its powers are. I know it's supposedly more powerful than the Helm of Domination was, but I don't know what it does. I don't think any of us do. Yeah, so... Knowing about the Shadowlands shouldn't have much more impact on the lives of the people in Azeroth than knowing about Hades had on the people of ancient Greece or knowing about, you know, Valhalla had on the people of, of ancient of Norway. They, they knew these places. They knew this, that whether or not we consider them correct, obviously we don't, but to them in their lives, they knew what happened when you died. They had a roadmap to it. They knew exactly, oh, you know, Higabar died. Well, he, how did he die? Oh, you know, he, he murdered like 17 dudes in a brawl and the 18th managed to shank him at the end. Well, he died fighting. That's great. He'll he'll be up in Valhalla. The choosers of the slain will have brought him to Odin. And that's it. Nobody was like, well, we need him back. Um, it's really hard here and we need to get, you know, he's a good fighter. Let's, let's go ask for, you know, and there were even myths about people who did that kind of thing. And it very rarely worked out like Orpheus trying to get back Eurydice. He didn't. You know, he went down there and, you know, Hades was like, well, you know what? Yeah, you can have her back as long as you don't turn around and look at her at any point in time until you're up there. And of course, he turned around and looked at her and she didn't get to come back. That's the myths and legends accounted for those kind of things. In the case of Azeroth, this is a real thing that we know is part of the world. But the people of human societies also knew that it was a real thing that was part of the world, whether or not they were right. So... I don't think it's necessarily going to have that big an impact, but even if you think it will, the fact remains, it's as easy as saying, well, now that the veil is sealed, you can't just go through it. Like, remember the Shadowlands were never a place we were intended to visit. No. And like the, the fact that we got there at all is, you know, not great. (laughs) Like, I mean, it is and isn't right. Like we, but you're right. We were never supposed to go there. I, I I don't know. Like I'm I'm on the fence about this. I don't think it changes the narrative uh about death. I think it changes some of the knowledge because also it depends on who knows about it too, right? Cause think about the story of Shadowlands. It wasn't armies of people going, right? It wasn't a ton of, of military presence, which you know, conscripted farmers or, or common citizens that were taking up arms and militia that were going through to the Shadowlands. It was heroes. It was people that were considered mall walkers or, or capable of, of withstanding it and some select NPCs, right? Like, even the NPCs that go through, it's not Velen. It's not, you know, not our, our favorite wolf boy. Uh, you know, it's Thrall and... and Bane and it's you know Kalia and a handful of them. They don't have to tell everybody what happened. They don't have to tell everybody that there's something beyond death. And in fact, it might behoove them not to. Especially in the case of you know Anduin. Oh, we're glad to see you're back, sir. Where were you? Oh, I kind of did this whole thing where I tried to help take over the land of death and recreate reality. How was your weekend? Like it's it's not exactly something that I think they're going to be keen to talk about, especially when you, you talk about characters like Bane and like Anduin who went through extreme trauma while they were there. Like it's, it's not something I think they would generally openly talk about and nothing says your character will talk about it either. And even if we did kind of Shadowlands has an answer built in for that beyond just the veil, right? It's an infinite reality of death. Again, 
go to the Arbiter's Chamber and just look out. Look at how many doors are there. Look at the millions that they reference this in the the ending chapters of Zareth Mortis. That like the engine of the afterlives makes an infinite number of afterlives. Some of them specifically for individuals, presumably. We actually even now still don't know where everybody is. Like, where's Sarfang? We haven't seen him. We maybe have an idea, possibly, but we don't have confirmation. We don't know if he's in his own his own afterlife. We don't know if he's in his own peaceful ex- uh, forever existence. Where's Thrall's father? We don't know. We know that afterlives are created. We know that at least some of the realms are created to participate in the cycle of death and life. We know that there is a very specific mechanism set up, at least in the lands we visit, but those are only the lands we visit. We, we It's an infinite expanse that we don't know everything about. And so I don't think it really changes much. And even though maybe at the end of your character story, you're a member of the Kyrian, you know, you're, you're a member of their covenant, uh, you're friends with them, you're buddy-buddy with them, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to shirk their duty and just be like, okay, yeah, cool, your friend, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll just drop him off here for you and forget we were ever going to do it. As a matter of fact, one of the things they do in the, like, beginning campaign is take you through the life and memories of that farmer in that last stand, right? Where he's coming to terms with what happened to him and how he died defending his family in the scourge invasion. And even they say that as hard as it is, it's the job to get that soul to move on. That is still their job. So I don't think it changes really anything. I don't think it changes the ongoing look. I think it also puts some things in perspective, though. Uh, I talk about Shaman a lot. And the reason I do that, at least in terms of Shadowlands, not just because I really enjoy them, but because throughout the history of, of Warcraft in general, Shaman have been spiritual beacons for their people, able to talk to their ancestors. Well, if their ancestors presumably are in the Shadowlands, or maybe don't understand that, that means that they have a way of communicating through the veil to wherever their ancestors are. That's always been the case, whether the, we knew the Shadowlands existed or not. And very clearly, a lot of the spirits that reside in those lands don't know they're dead. They don't know that they're in the Shadowlands. They don't know that they're in the afterlife. And even if they do, if I'm talking to my ancestor, my ancestor is describing to me uh, an endless field of of golden wheat that they tend to, which was their their happy place when they were alive, what they always wanted to do, but yet, you know, now they have it. That doesn't tell me which realm they're in. So it doesn't really change anything. I just think it just adds context to some of the things that we may have experienced before. It also certainly adds context to the spirit healers and how that all works. And the last thing you asked was about Sylvanas finding Athanos' soul yet. Not yet, at least not according to any story that's currently in-game or hinted about. I am actually curious to see that myself personally, to see what sort of happens, because there is a really, there is a very interesting conversation in-game between Anduin and Sylvanas at the end, which I think everybody should go and experience, while the Owl Companion of Tehran looks looks upon that, that conversation while Sylvanas is doing her work in the mall. She's going to be there a while. She's got a lot of stuff to do, and I don't think she's gotten back to the the Sanctum of Domination yet. And my bet is that he's somewhere in there, in the private vaults. So, what about you, Matt? I know you're kind of tired of the whole Sylvanas Nathanos thing, or at least not tired of I it, mean, but you've had your fill if, of it, I think. If Nathanos comes back, it would be kind of funny to watch Toronto kill him. That would be yeah. great. He just keeps dying. Every time he comes back, I'm back! Oh! <laughs> no, I'm just tired. Stop doing that. Stop bringing him back. Keep him on that side of things. He stays over there. We're all fine with it. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, it's not even a question of, I don't really even have any animosity towards it. I'm just not interested. It's like, yeah, uh, let's go do dragons. I'm really, I'm really keen on the dragon thing happening. Let's, let's, let's talk more about that. Yeah. You know, let, let, let's let Nathanos take a, take a breather. He was, he was getting pretty tiresome for me by the end. Uh, so yeah, I'm okay with him. He can take a nap and he can come back in a couple of expansions when I'm I'm not as burned out on him. Well, hopefully that answers your question, but we're going to go ahead and move on to the next one, which is from our friend Jack Jack. Uh, with us going to the Dragon Isles now, what are other unvisited, unvisited Azerothian places we know of and might visit and their lore associations? 
Matt, I mean, really, what what places do we know of that we haven't been to yet? Besides, I don't think we've really been to, uh, what is it, Kenzen? Goblin area? I mean, we went to Kazan for the, the start of the goblins thing, but we haven't been to Undermine, mm-hmm. which is the place underneath Kazan. Kazan is like, Kazan is the surface area, and Undermine is the actual huge complex underneath it where goblins really live. It'd be like the equivalent of... Like going to Ironforge and just hanging out at the gate. That's kind of like, you know, or just hanging out in Dunmoreau and not actually going to Ironforge. That's kind of like that. And we haven't been there. So that's that's something we could do. Um, we've now seen like Zandalar Isle. So we know we know the Zandalari place pretty pretty effectively. Um I'm trying to think of any place we, we we don't we still don't know what some of the uh Titan facilities that we had named in, in Battle for Azeroth, we don't know where they are. Um Aldorus, no idea where it is or what it is. Uh, we've been to the Maelstrom, so we know that pretty effectively. Uh, but in terms of places on Azeroth that we've heard of but not visited, there are not many left. Um, we haven't done much with the Great Sea. Not the uh, Actually, I'm not sure if I'm using the right term. The Great Sea is the one in the middle with a Maelstrom in it. Correct. But the, o- the ocean on the other side of either Kalimdor or the Eastern Kingdoms, where does it go? Like how far away is that area? Like, can you go around the world and come back around and hit Kalimdor? If you start sailing essentially east from the Eastern Kingdoms, will you eventually go around the world and, and bump into Kalimdor? We don't know. Um, we've seen globes and stuff in Titan facilities, but usually those kind of fixated on the continents we already know about. We don't even know if if like Kalimdor and uh, the Eastern Kingdoms, the original old Kalimdor. We don't even know if it like covered the entirety of a hemi- like both hemispheres, or if it was just in one hemisphere. We don't know that. We don't. We don't know how big Azeroth is. So, in terms of places we've heard of, we haven't been to the Emerald Dream. Not really. We've kind of we've we've been to like little pieces of it, but we've not actually traveled to the Emerald Dream. We haven't really been to the underground places that exist in Azeroth. We've again a few times we've gone down, but we've only seen like one or two things, like uh, oh bloody heck, uh, the uh, the Nerubian city. You remember it? It was a dungeon on Ketet, the old kingdom. Uh, both you know on Ketet and the other dungeon, which is also set in the underground realm. We, we've been there, but we haven't been to any of the other stuff between them. We know that there's a vast amount of subterranean regions in Northrend, but we also know there's ones in other places. Um, we know that there's like a whole bunch of stuff going on in what's now the Eastern Kingdoms and in, in Kalimdor. So the underground stuff we haven't seen. But aside from that, I can't think of anything that we've had mentioned that we haven't been to at this point. Like we've even been to places that we didn't know existed, like the uh, Broken the broken Isles. We knew about the, t- the Tomb of Sargeras, but, and we knew that Suramar used to exist. We didn't know it still existed, and we didn't know the rest of the islands had been there the whole time. You know, we just did not know that. So, yeah, I don't, I can't think of anything else. Yeah, me, me either. Like that, and that's the thing. Like we've, we've been almost. We haven't been to the moons. We, we haven't did, been to the moons. We have we not been to the moons. moons there, we have not been to them. <laughs> but for all of Blizzard's history with with Azeroth, we've been most places, which is not a bad thing. It means that I think there's less backtracking to do. That probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but. There's less pre-existing places we need to worry about once Dragon Isles is kind of done. At that point, now we can start going new places that we haven't been to before and maybe haven't heard of. And I think that's more exciting. Matt and I have talked about uh, what we call the vacation expansion, where we just kind of go places and explore. And I still hold out hope for that. I really do. I think that exploring new places and having things that don't have sort of pre-existing baggage, uh, maybe that's the wrong word, but like pre-existing expectations, I think would be nice. It would be really interesting. So we'll see if we ever get that, but I don't think there's a whole lot of unvisited Azerothian places that we know of that we haven't been to yet, besides the moons. But my bets are that the moon's haunted, so we'll see how that works out. All right, this is a, another question from Tetsemi. <laughs> it's a little bit of a derailment, but I, it's funny, so I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, so Stray is made by Annapurna Interactive. There's also an Annapurna Gate. 
one of the enormous gates of the Outer Palace in Warhammer 40k. The Imperial Palace resides on top of the flattened Mount Everest. In Warhammer, they've basically leveled the top of the Himalayas and built the Imperial Palace on ground on the grounds on top of it, and then into the mountains. It's roughly 310 kilometers or 190 miles from Annapurna Base Camp to Everest Base Camp. Mind boggles how big this palace is. How much would you like a stray version to explore the Imperial Palace? So... Funny you should mention that, because there are already people out there modding Stray in a lot of very strange ways, and one of them is a 40k mod. Um, It is weird. Um, But, that said, if there was ever a time where we could get something that would actually allow us to traverse the Imperial Palace and kind of see the, the breadth of it, I would always be very interested in that, because it's often described mostly in terms of its largeness because it is the seat of humanity for the entire universe. Right. So I don't know. Like I would love to be able to run through there and, and maybe see how far down the golden throne is and maybe take a look through the, the halls that have all these, uh, I don't want to, they're, they're really, they are spoils of war, right? Like they're, they're things that have been brought back to the Imperial palace from the various conquests and wars over the years. Some of it is, is, uh, from what they call Xenos architecture or, or Xenos uh, archaeological uh, pieces. We know that Malkador was a collector of things and had his own gallery inside of the Imperial Palace. Just having a game where I'm a cat running through there or some form of cat-like creature, maybe it's a, a cat servitor uh, just kind of running around the place. Yeah, I'd be down for it. I don't know if you have an opinion on that one, Matt. Sorry, no. <laughs> I'm still waiting for, you know, stray but you're playing a dinosaur so one day one day we'll have that i'm sure (laughs) all right well we have uh, a couple more questions left so see if we can get through those uh this one comes from titan fuzz uh and it's again 40k uh i really enjoyed your recent 40k lore i've been mainlining it as much as i can go over the last couple years as i've gotten into some of the video games like space rain and playing in a tabletop rpg in the wrath and glory system and, and setting, as well as buying my first 40k minis last summer. Uh, first, I'm going to interrupt the question. I'm very sorry, Titan Fuzz. I, I, my condolences for getting into it because it is a slippery slope. Uh, with Warhammer 40k Dark Tide coming out soon, I was wondering if you could go into any lore bits of things you found interesting from the trailers. Thanks for everything you do. Uh, the thing that I thought was interesting is these are, if I'm looking at the story correctly, penal soldiers. So they are ones that were taken from uh, prison and told that this is their last chance. And basically, they're suicide squatting it. Uh, you have an Ogryn, who is a mutation, which we know that the uh, at the Imperial like government, uh, basically the Imperium of Man, tolerates Ogryns because it is a useful mutation, but generally they don't suffer mutations to live. Uh, we know that there is a Psyker in the mix, which is also fascinating because Imperial Psychers are rare. Most of the time they're used as offerings to the Golden Throne to keep it powered up. And while that lore is shifting now, this could be a result of that being reflected in a modern game where the Drukhari, which are the new name for the the Dark Elves, essentially the the Dark Eldar, uh, have been working on and trying to repair the Golden Throne, which was damaged in the siege of Terra all those years ago when Malkador sacrificed himself to keep the gate shut and keep the forces of chaos and the warp out from being able to pour into the seat of humanity to now where the emperor wounded after his battle with uh, Horus uh, and after killing Horus, but not being able to essentially heal himself, which is a whole other complicated thing we can talk about with Eternals later. Uh, sits on the throne and is, they think the throne is sustaining him, but the truth is that it's the other way around. The Emperor's psychic presence, which is now the beacon of of all humanity for uh, traveling the warp, is sustaining the Golden Throne. So if the Drukhari are fixing the Golden Throne, meaning it doesn't need to have a thousand psychers being fed to it a day, which it's a thousand psychers a day, then they can start finding other things for them to do, like going to fight a bunch of chaos cultists, because if it dies, they generally don't care if the Psyker dies. But if it stops an invasion of 
uh, Chaos Cultists. I believe these ones are, are Nurgle specifically, uh, because Nurgle seems to be the new head of Chaos. Uh, then, yeah, like they're going to throw them out there. And then you have the basic rank-and-file soldier foot trooper who's in there as well, and then I think a heavy weapon specialist. But they all seem to be prisoners that are being sent on the suicide mission, which is interesting because they have not talked about that in the recent books, and that is something that they haven't really done since Rogue Trader. So that, I think, is most of the interesting bits. And then also the fact that Nurgle is expanding its its influence is continuing to be an, a, an interesting lore bit. It used to be an even mix between all of the Chaos Gods, but now you're starting to see Nurgle take a more prominent role, mostly because Mortarion was the first fallen Primarch to come back uh, in service to Nurgle, and then after that it was Zinch, and now we finally see Korn getting their champion back, with Slaanesh still not having their champion and falling sort of to the wayside, as the Eldari are sort of more securing themselves in their place in the universe. So I don't know. We The machinations of Nurgle and how far Nurgle is spreading, I think is really sort of the big story beat of Darktide. And the fact that they're going in to wipe out uh, cultists on their own versus them sending in space marines uh, or, or an entire Imperial army is an interesting choice. So do you have any thoughts or opinions on that one, Matt? It's not Rogue Trader, so I don't care. <laughs> it is the game that Matt is looking forward to the most, I think, out of all of the ones that are Yeah, Rogue Trader is the one I am super, super, super excited about. Not just because Alcat's making it, although that certainly helps, because Alcat has made two of my favorite uh, CRPGs. Not just because it is also a CRPG, so it's less like playing Warhammer 40k and more like playing... Uh, you know, the, the Warhammer fantasy roleplay, but with 40 K elements and partially just because I like the idea of what rogue trader is setting up that it is about, you know, the rogue traders are one of the more interesting things about the Warhammer setting, in my opinion, because they're basically, they're like, they're like pirates in a way they are, or privateers more actually. They, they get a warrant of trade from the emperor's, you know, not me. The blessing of the emperor. I don't think the emperor himself actually writes the warrant. No, it's the uh, you know? the high lords of Terra. Yeah. yeah, but basically the emperor set this whole thing up. So rogue traders are like capable of pretty much ignoring the entire imperial setup because they can say, you know, they go to a place and the the local uh, space marine gar- bar- garrison is like, you know, your ship is going to get searched, and he's like, bullshit, it is. You know, no, it isn't. I, I have a warrant of trade right here. You're not doing anything to me, and it is interesting because in a society as repressive as the imperium is the rogue traders are kind of like a necessary steam valve they they serve as this is a means by which you can get outside of that hierarchy and it it serves a purpose for the imperium as well because it expands humanity's role in the cosmos so it i really like the idea so but that's not to say dark tide doesn't look interesting um I was just looking up about it because, quite frankly, I had not heard about it. Uh, just just hadn't heard about it. And I was looking out. It was supposed to be out by now, but it's not coming out till November now. Yeah, they postponed um, it, which I think was a smart call. But that's a whole other topic. Almost always is a good idea. But what's interesting about it is, like, you talked about how they're, they're conscripts. They're, you know, prison soldiers. I think you called them... Uh, uh, you called them a word that sounds very much like another word, so I'm not going to use that <laughs> word. Um, Penal soldiers, but yes. Yeah. It sounds very much like you're saying something else. Yes. Uh so I just like that. I like that idea of of getting to see like the the the, the, the how do I explain this? Basically, it's it's the, the world of Warhammer Forty K is so dystopian that other dystopias look like paradises in comparison. Like it is extremely repressive. Whole planets are basically turned into like you know dumps or or you know twisted up nowhere places. It it is, and the wars that they fight are like you know planet shattering. Like there's a lot of horrible things going on. And Joe talked about chaos and chaos's roles. Um, there's just a lot to it. And I think for me, the rogue trader is more of what I'm interested in, but dark tide has that idea of, you know, like there's, there's people like the, uh, I can't remember the name of the ogre kind of like people, the Ogren. giant Ogren, the Ogren. So unfortunately I, I also have uh privateer presses, uh, war bands stuck in my head, the horde games. 
and they have another race that's similar to them. So they're getting mished up in my head. Mm-hmm. But the idea that there are mutants that they allow, they don't like them. They don't get an equal share of the, the spoils or anything. They're not like considered real people, but they'll allow them because at least the mutation is useful. Same thing that they do with ratlings, right? Which are essentially yeah. uh, halflings. They're, they're fantasy, they're, they're sci-fi halflings, right? Yeah, more or less. Or kind of kind of Nizumi from the the old days of uh, Le- Legend of the Five Rings type stuff, but oh, yeah, yeah, it's it, it's it's interesting to see 40k coming out so much right now. There's a lot of 40k happening, a lot of different games. It's just interesting to see them all sort of dovetailing to right now. Uh, Rogue, Tra- Rogue Trader won't be till next year at the earliest. I would in fact not expect it or twenty. We can but, talk. You know, we can talk about that more on Tuesday, but I, I think yeah. you're right, though. I think there's going to be. I think it's going to be an interesting insight into the current mindset and politics of the universe. Because one thing I will, I'm going to say is, for a very long time, the Warhammer universe was very stagnant. Um, the story didn't move. There was no new anything. There was no new events, and anything new that was introduced was a historical event that had been uncovered right? Like the Badab War or things like that. These were things that weren't currently happening, but had already previously happened. Now we're actually starting to get things uh, like the fall of Kadia and like moving the story forward, which interestingly enough is starting to move towards what back in the early days of, of uh, Warhammer being more than just rogue trader. Um, there was always this sort of mimicry of the Norse mythology with it. And it was always moving towards a Ragnarok-like universal extinction event. It was a really cool idea that they never did anything with. And now it seems like they're finally starting to move closer towards it. And I bring this up because the idea of Nurgle being a prominent now and Nurgle being the one that brought back the first of the fallen Primarchs is kind of important and will likely play a role in this as it is Nurgle cultists that you are going to to deal with. But again, not the only one. Zinch's champion, uh, Magnus the Red, is back and active and fighting. And now we have the the Red Angel themselves, the you know, the the original uh Primarch, and I'm for whatever reason my brain is blanking, um, of the World Eaters is back in his demonic form. There's only one more champion left to bring forth, and that's Fulgrim and whether or not they do that is that that dictates whether or not it kicks off Ragnarok because that was one of the interesting things of the story is when all four of the champions of chaos like are back that's when things start to go to even more grim dark than they already are and so seeing how the story's advancing even through dark tide I think plays a part of that uh, I don't think there's anything else to add to that one. And I think we have a couple minutes left. So I'm going to try to answer this last question here because I think it's great. And I already think I know what Matt's answer is, but I'm going to ask it. This one comes from Tolkien BG. What's your favorite Magic the Gathering plane? Ravnica is a perennial favorite as well as Innistrad. Kaladesh gets me because I love Middle Eastern steampunk look of the plane. Matt, what's your favorite plane of Magic the Gathering? It's probably Theros. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think like I'm... I'm- doing anything really surprising here by saying that um i liked um i had all the plane ship ones and i liked zendikar i thought zendikar was really cool i think you mind i have never played magic the gathering everything i know about magic the gathering is from other things that tie into it but are not magic the gathering card decks or anything because i've literally never played it um and it's not out of any great animus i don't have like a I'm not sitting here going, magic show. I don't worry. I, I literally just, just haven't. Um, I think at the time magic was getting big. I didn't have the money mm-hmm. to get into it. And I was like, I was very much, a, I, I, I didn't, a lot of my history with like the hobby is getting books and reading them and never getting to play them because I didn't, there weren't enough people around who wanted to play anything that wasn't Dungeons and Dragons. So like, for instance, I was, I had the very original, uh, Shadowrun book, the blue cover one. Mm-hmm. I had that when it like like when it came out, but I never got to play it. Uh, I never got to play it until like I think third or fourth edition. Uh, and the same thing with Magic. It's just I. It was just I. The the barrier to entry was a money and b. I didn't know anybody who played it. So at the time to play the game instead of just collecting the cards, I would have had to like go to Boston 
because there wasn't much in Rhode Island about it. And I mean, that changed after a few years, but by then it had kind of passed me by and I'd moved into different kind of stuff. So what I know about the magic planes are, is stuff I've read. Uh, like the Zendikar plane shift book. I really liked I thought it was cool. Um, I liked the, the, uh, the kind of like, you know, the, the jungle, the, the wild, completely untamed place. And I like Theros because I like Greek mythology and Theros is very much, you know, it's kind of like alterna fantasy Greek. It's like most D and D type games. Most fantasy is based on that, you know, Western European Tolkienian inspired stuff. I liked the idea of fantasy that, that is based on the mythology of Greece instead. It just felt cool. It's not exactly the same as Greek mythology, but it has that same kind of feeling for much the similar reason that I enjoyed like, you know, other, other attempts at that kind of thing too. But yeah, I, I guess I, yeah, I would really have to go with Theros. I, that's exactly what I expected. Um, mine is a three-way split. Dominaria is one of my favorites because it is the original. It's what the the OG Alpha, Beta, Unlimited, Revised, uh, and basically all sets that came before Arabian Nights and Homelands took place in. Uh, it's where the Weatherlight Saga, Tempest, and all that stuff took place as well. Uh, and it was the nexus of Magic's planar multiverse. So it represented the ultimate possibility of everything could happen. And now in we're going to be going back to Dominaria very, very soon. Um, like I think next month, actually, if I'm, if I remember right, but that's where so many of these key September 9th. Thank you. Uh, it's where so many of the key, uh, NPCs or, or characters come from. Urza is from Dominaria. Karn, Urza's creation is from there. Nicobolas, the, the primal dragon that conquered everything almost. And his brother Ugin are from there. Avencer is from there. Uh, you have Jared Carthelian is from there. And some of these names may not mean stuff to people, but like these are important in the novels and a lot of the stuff that came out later. Teferi, uh, Tevesh Savat or Sazat, Windgrace, uh, Jessica, uh, Liliana Vess. Like these are all huge, huge, huge characters in the story that unfolds. They're all from Dominaria. The other one that holds a very special place in my heart is Kamigawa. Kamigawa was at its time problem looking back on it problematic is is a word for it because it was definitely a lot of cultural appropriation however it was something that always sort of spoke to me the idea of like honorable samurai and ninjas and being at one with the kami and the spirits of the world and finding sort of that balance uh it was recently revisited in a neon cyberpunk version of it uh which advanced the story several hundreds of years into the future and it is fascinating. We barely got to spend any time there, but the storyline that is unfolding uh, with that and, and what it means for the other ones uh, is probably some of my absolute favorite in terms of uh, just general settings. But what probably is my number one is actually Strixhaven. I actually love it, not just because it's a D&D setting as well, but because it is the current representation of what Dominaria was. It is the ultimate potential because it sits at a nexus point where every plane and every piece of existence in the multiverse for both magic and D&D touch. Every plane, everything that exists has a way to Strixhaven. And it represents the ultimate sort of melting pot. It's like what Sigil used to be when Sigil was around. Um, and I'm saying this as I'm looking at the Spelljammer book sitting next to me. It is very well done and framed in a planar university makes it very accessible, but it again has that ultimate potential. You could have an angel that's having class with a devil or a fiend. You could have wizards from Dominaria having fun with Elminster or having deep philosophical conversations with Melth. Like, these are all things that could happen. So Strixhaven, for me, is probably my number one, uh, just in terms of, one, being a fantastic story setup, and two, uh, the fact that Liliana Voss was apparently a teacher there for a while, which, that's weird, but also kind of neat. But it's just it's ultimate potential. Anything to add to that before we close out here, Matt? No, I think I pretty much said the one that I meant. Okay. 
Well, I do want to thank everybody for sending in those questions. Again, please continue to send them in. You can send them into podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Specify the show that it's for. You can also hit us up on our Discord server for our patron Q, Q, eh, wow, patron Q and podcast questions. Uh, then you can also send us to a regular Q and podcast questions if you are not a Patreon supporter. Uh, Blizzard Watch is made possible due to your generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. Your continued support means this podcast-sighting community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to our podcasts, a better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. And as one last reminder, all of us at Blizzard Watch continue to stand with the employees of Activision Blizzard, the game industry at large, and basically everywhere, because it's the right thing to do, uh, as they work to unionize and make sure that we have safe work environments, fair treatment, and fair pay. But thank you very much, folks. We'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.